I hope uh, you're ready to jump through the book of 1 Thessalonians in this coming series, but I want to actually, before we get there, now you know I'm a big intro guy. I, I, I don't go short on my sermons. I try, but every week, every time I try, it seems the Lord just adds uh, content for us to cover. Not my fault. Uh, but nonetheless, we are not going to jump into the book of 1 Thessalonians tonight, but rather look at the history of the book of 1 Thessalonians in the chapters 16 and 17 of the book of Acts. So can you actually open there, a few pages back the other way towards Genesis, in Acts chapter 16 and 17. Let me, let me tell you that, that uh, when I was uh, back in December, I had the, the privilege and by God's grace to uh, go over to Texas and spend some time with our founding pastor, the, the planting pastor of this church, and uh, Craig Island over in Texas, and as we were uh, ministering together at his church and, and talking, and, and uh, I was definitely uh, gaining some great insight from him, but we had this uh, evening where we, where we were sitting on his couch after a day of ministry at his church, and, and we got talking about the early days of Hope Reformed Baptist Church. Now, maybe a handful of you, if you were here, I'd get you to put your hand up. You can do it at home if you want, and the people in your household can just give you a great round of applause. But, but, but uh, not many of us who are here, and I'd say again, maybe only a small handful, will, will remember those days so early on because it started so small. This church started so small and, and grew, and, and by God's blessing, it, it abounded and flourished in mission and growth and salvation of souls, but, but it was just something else to be able to sit there and, and learn about from days before I was a, a blessed enough to be brought by God to this wonderful church family. But to hear the stories, the things that God had done, the, the ways he had moved, the provisions he had brought about, the people that he brought along. You know, being able to ask the question, what was it that, that sort of brought this culture to develop at Hope Church? Oh, it was, it was those events. Or, or being able to hear the, 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 the timestamps and the stories of these people coming, who I now know as close friends, uh, to, to even hear his, his assessment of what things were happening early on that have since become problems that needed to be dealt with and have been by God's grace. And, and so it was just so interesting and not just intriguing to hear the history of Hope Church, Hope Reformed Baptist Church as a family and as a building of, the, of, the, of gospel dedication, right? It wasn't just intriguing. It, it actually brought to me a, a great deal of heightened esteem of all those people, of course, the preacher himself and the family around him and the church as a whole, just brought it an all an ever increased esteem of the people to to hear back those stories and hear them recounted and realize how how hard this place was fought for was was worked for to build was how much this church has been through in her history only short uh, eleven and a bit years just to to hear the amazing things that God had done really made me realize I have people to thank all the more back home. This church it stands as it does on the shoulders of many people who have given their lives, their money, their time. It brought, brought a, a greatly increased sense of esteem, but it also, it also gave to me a real realism about the place that you probably know just like I do. As, as we tell stories and we look back and remember, we can either just uh, uh, sugarcoat the past and the history of, of any local church, but, but just in general, we look back and, and we just tell the highlights, sort of the Instagram reel of a church life, and, and it just looks amazing, and, and it really makes us seem quite downcast in maybe this current situation, or that season that we've come to, or, or the future that we might not think is going to be as bright as the past, but, but when we get a realistic look of what the past is and what it has been in a church, it made me realize these are the same problems that every church goes through, that we go through, that we are going through, that the past was not this smooth ride of God's blessings and nothing else. There's realism of, of removing all the idealism and the naivety and just seeing the ugly truth for what history is. And that's what I think we're going to gain as we look at the book of Acts 
and see the, the history of the, of the church of Thessalonica being birthed and preached to and developed and grown, we're going to see just exactly that, have an all new respect for what this church is. I hope that uh, you, if, if, you, if you're listening and you're not all that familiar with the book of First Thessalonians or the church, I hope that this is going to be a great uh, perspective uh, bringing sermon to you, to, to see the, the context, to see what happened to make the church what it is, uh, to look at the history around it, what, what, what made all of those events so significant, and, and to see also what was sacrificed to bring that church that we're going to study so much about into existence and into growth. Well, it all starts, as the book of First Thessalonians does, with three men, Paul, Silvanus, sometimes called Silas, which is what I'll be referring to him as, and Timothy. Now, Luke will come on at some point. We'll, we'll see that. But, but the book of Thessalonians centers around those men and their mission and the triumph of Christ's gospel. I want to tell you the, the history and the story. So it starts in Acts 15. This is uh, the second missionary journey of Paul. There's going to be a bit of history, a bit of geography here as we go, so, so please track with me. I'll be looking through your book of Acts, uh, chapter 16 and 17. But the book of Acts, as it follows the Apostle Paul and his ministry from about chapter 9 onwards or so, what we see is three main missionary trips or journeys. We see the first one, which goes to Asia Minor. Okay, Syria and Asia Minor. Now, I want you to picture the Mediterranean Sea in your, in your mind. And, and over here on the east side of the Mediterranean Sea, you've got Jerusalem. Okay, that's Israel. That's the, the, the Jerusalem uh, landmass just there. Now, as you go up onto the, the top side of the Mediterranean, you've got three main landmasses that sort of stick into the Mediterranean Sea. The first one is Asia Minor, now called Turkey. That is the, is the first landmass you get as you try. Now, that's where First Peter was addressed to. We, we looked all into that in that series. The next landmass, though, you've got the Aegean Sea. And then the next landmass jutting out is Greece. That's where you've got Macedonia, where Thessalonica is. That's that landmass. And then the third landmass over the Adriatic Sea is Rome, is Italy, that boot coming into the Mediterranean Sea. Now, now, in Paul's mission trips, the first mission trip comes up from uh, Jerusalem, uh, sorry, from Antioch, which is up in Syria. He goes from there up into Asia Minor, goes all around into Galatia and all of those areas, uh, and then returns back through the sea, eventually going back to Antioch. The second mission trip goes up and through Asia Minor again, but this time makes it all the way onto the second landmass there, Macedonia and Greece and other areas there. From there, he returns back uh, and eventually makes it back to um, uh, Antioch, which we'll look at again, that whole details. And then the third mission trip, he went back away all through both landmasses, both areas, both Asia Minor and Greece, and ends up in Jerusalem. Now, um, now, we're going to be spending our time looking at that second missionary journey when Paul and his men go from Antioch in Syria up into Asia Minor, but really skirt over that into Greece. This is happening just after Acts chapter 15. Uh, so you can look at, if you're looking at the second missionary journey, it's from Acts chapter 15 verse 40 through to Acts chapter 18, verse 22. That's the, that's the, time st the uh, chapter stamp for you. And it's happening in about the years uh, 49, 50 to about 51 or 52 AD. So this starts with, and if you know your, your book of Acts, uh, it, this is, it starts with a heartbreak that Paul had gone on his first missionary journey with his co-laborer Barnabas. And the man who wrote the book of Mark, John Mark, he had accompanied them for part of it, but at some point that he had deserted. And so when they start their second missionary journey, by now Mark is back and he wants to join them. And Paul says, no, he can't be trusted. Barnabas, it says they have a sharp disagreement. And because they could not agree, they split Barnabas went one way, where we, are, we know that they stay on good terms together, but out of wisdom and out of conscience, they do not continue the next mission trip together. They remain brothers, but separate. 
Now, Paul, instead of Barnabas, takes Silas with him to be his right-hand man on this mission trip. Now, they start, they go up into, uh, uh, th- from Syria up into Asia Minor. They, they work through uh, Cilicia, where they meet Timothy. You, you can read in the, in, uh, in the books later on, uh, of First and Second Timothy, but about their relationship. But at the moment, we see when they meet. Maybe Timothy was um, converted on Paul's last mission trip when he went through that area a couple of years ago. Maybe that's the case because now, by the time Paul has arrived there again, coming up through Asia Minor, he meets this young man firm in the faith, called to ministry. Paul brings him into their mission team and Silas, Paul, and Timothy start making their way onwards and upwards for the cause of Christ. Now, as they went, they started commanding and passing on the uh, imperatives that the church uh, council, the Jerusalem council that we read about in Acts chapter 15, all the elders and the apostles came together in Jerusalem to settle a debate and to settle what became enormously significant for the rest of the church life, in, in, up until this day and forevermore. And the question they were settling was, Jesus, a Jew, died in fulfillment of Jewish Old Testament scriptures. They, the, the Jews, that is, are, are part of God's covenant people and enter into the new covenant by their faith in a Jewish Messiah, right? And and so now, where do the Gentiles fit in? For some, they didn't understand it, but as it started happening through the workings of God, Gentiles, pagans, with no connection to Abraham, no connection to the Jewish history, no connection to the Jewish religion, temple, or worship, are now coming to faith, and they're skipping the line. They're cutting to the front, going through none of our law. They get to skip circumcision. That's not fair. We had to go through that. They cut right to the front to Jesus, get saved, and are now in the family, in the church of God, on the same level as the Jews. The question had to be asked as heresy started to grow and as false teachers taking opportunity came in to afflict the flock of God with false gospel teaching. Read about that in the book of Galatians. They started saying, it's not enough for you Gentiles to just come on in and have faith in Christ. That's good, you need that. But what you need in order to be saved is that you need to enter into Christ and his gospel through faith and Judaistic ceremonial laws. You need to, he's a Jewish Messiah, Jewish salvation, Jewish scriptures. Friends, if you're a Gentile, you need to accept some of the laws of the Old Testament so that you can be identified as Jewish and then walk forth into the gospel of the Jewish Savior. And the Jerusalem Council settled that debate and put down that, that in fact, no, that is not necessary. Without any connection to Old Testament uh, covenant, to, with no connection to the temple, our forefathers, without any even knowledge of them, a Gentile can walk straight out of his pagan temple, sacrificing to idols, maybe even filled with a demon himself, hear the gospel message of Christ where you are justified and made righteous before your creator, God, by the sacrifice and atonement of Jesus Christ made for you if you have nothing else but faith in its trustworthiness and truth. If you believe that, you become God's family, child, just like any other Jew. And you don't have to act Jewish, become Jewish, but you have to learn to get along with your Jewish friends and brothers, of course, that you are a Christian. That is what the council put forward. The Jewish uh, apostles made very clear, Gentiles do not become Jews, they become Christians. Though they had some application, wisdom, remarks, and commands on how those two can live together without, without getting at each other culturally because of uh, uh, the situation. But nonetheless, as Paul and Silas and Timothy go, they strengthen the churches they've already planted a couple of years prior. They hand on this, this edict from the Jerusalem Council telling everybody, officially, the whole church and all the leaders agree it's by faith and faith alone. Circumcision and no other part of the law of the Old Testament is necessary to apply 
in order to receive Christ. Now, they move, as they continue going, they move up through, a little bit further, through Galatia, in the middle of Asia Minor, and up through uh, Phrygia. And then what they wanted to do was turn left. Or they wanted to come west and start going from Galatia into the, the untapped area called Asia. Not so much Asia Minor, but over closer to the sea on the coast, just uh, across the sea from uh, Greece. They wanted to go over to this portion of the land and preach through Asia. They, they had this call of God in their hearts to go, so they thought. But it says that the Holy Spirit stopped them. In in Acts chapter 16, verse 6, it says, this is Luke speaking, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. If you've ever felt, I'm just going to take a step to the side and talk to us for a moment. If, if you've ever felt like saying, maybe you've even said it, that, that you just don't feel like God wants you to preach the gospel, to evangelize. I just don't feel called to that kind of thing or, or to speak to that person or go to that place or on a mission trip here. I don't think that's my calling. Friends, the Great Commission that Jesus gave to his disciples, which was to be taught to every disciple thereafter, is binding on every Christian for the rest of history. You and I, without any divine revelation, we are called to preach the gospel in any and every situation we can to the ends of the world if it costs us our life. Paul knew this. And I want to say that what it looks like... If you are ever going to say that I don't feel like God's calling me to that or I think that God doesn't want me to evangelize, it better look like the Holy Spirit appearing to you, speaking to you in a divine vision, saying, don't evangelize in this situation or in in your life. You're not allowed to do that. This is what it looks like. The, the Christian norm, the missionary norm, the pastoral norm is that men, women are so on fire by the Spirit for Christ in the gospel that they preach. And if ever God doesn't want an area of the globe evangelized for his own divine sovereign reasons, he will tell us. Until then, let's preach the gospel to every creature. No, so the Holy Spirit has to stop them because they are so zealous to preach wherever Christ has not yet been heard of. He forbids them from going through Asia. And so they move up to the north and they attempted, so they come to to the uh, northwest of Asia there, uh, to to one of the port cities uh, just near the the, the coast. And and maybe they're going to, they plan, well, we'll go over the north here to Bithynia and Pontius. And it says, when, when they attempted to go into Bithynia, the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Again, the Holy Spirit is stopping them from going. Now, I want to I say that any other missionary, maybe in, in any other generation, might see that the second time the Holy Spirit reveals to them, stop what you're doing. They might take that as second time lucky. This is confirmation. God doesn't want us to go to the field. Friends, I want to submit that that if we're going to be a church like the book of 1 Thessalonians, like Paul, Silas, and Timothy, if we want to be men after the heart of of the book of Acts, inflamed for the gospel, I want to say that every obstacle that comes across our path to share the gospel, to plant churches, to get the gospel to the nations via missions, raising funds to send out missionaries, There will be, I promise you, God-sent obstacles. And they are never to stop us from going. We, We should know that from divine revelation, God wants us to go. And be so set and assured in our hearts that that is true, that whenever we hit an obstacle, young men, young women, working towards ministry and service, please hear this especially Obstacles placed in front of you are not there to stop you, but they're to train you how to get over them, around them, and under them to continue on faithfully what God has called you to do. Obstacles are not there to stop us. They are to grow us in our adaptability. Never take 
hardships, difficulties as a sign from heaven that the gospel needs to slow down, stop, fizzle out, settle down with us. And so they didn't take that. Well, they, they couldn't go to Asia. They couldn't go over to the north. So they went to the port city of Troas and thought, where will we go? At this point, they pick up Luke, the, the, the beloved Luke, who is the doctor who wrote the book of Acts and the gospel of Luke, who will now help these men and who often will accompany them in the next missionary journey and, and in other uh, epistles, we see that Luke is alongside Paul. Well, at this point, they pick up Luke with them. Who knows whether he gets saved there. They're preaching in the dock. Luke gets saved. Or whether he had actually traveled over from another city where he had priorly been preached to and saved. We, we don't know. We don't have the details. But here he is. Probably a, a church history tells us he lives over in Syria. He's for some reason in Troas. He meets the missionaries, is brought up in on their mission. And it is there, it is there that Paul receives the Macedonian call. The Macedonian call is, is this moment. Now, now, we've just learned this morning a little bit about God's providence, how he sometimes ordinarily and normally works in our lives and other times miraculously and, and, and in a way that is undeniably uh, 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 outside of God's ordinary use and means and control. This is one of those examples. This is what it is. That Paul, sleeping at night or whatever it is, he has a vision and what he sees is a Macedonian man. He probably knew because the Macedonian, as he spoke, spoke like a Macedonian. <laughs> I'm just joking. Uh, but, but he sees this vision of a Macedonian man standing on the shore of Macedonia, crying out to Paul, come over to Macedonia and help us. Paul awakes and he knows we have to take the gospel to Macedonia. That's why God didn't let us into Asia. That's why the Holy Spirit stopped us from going over to Bithynia. There's a man, there's a family, there's a church, there's, there's life, there's a history, there's a future of the gospel in Macedonia. We need to get there and get to work. I want to just take another little uh, moment to, to sort of hit down a lot of Christianism or Christianese sayings that we will often hear. That people who will say, I want to know the will of God for my life. I, I want him to speak to me. I want a sign. I want a message. And, and part of me wants to say, God will never do that. Just read your Bible and get on with it. But, but I want to say that the church history is filled with, and the book of Acts is filled with, God, in fact, giving these divine revelations of decisions to be made, future events that are coming, or messages that people need to hear. We, we often will call them prophecies or word of knowledge or wisdom. And I want to say that the way that you hear from God, the way that you receive those kinds of messages is never by asking for or chasing those types of messages. What did Paul receive? What, what was Paul doing when he received that call, that vision, the sight, the, the, the great thing that he saw from God? He was not sitting at home twiddling his thumbs, wondering what to do, praying to God for some prophetic message. He was on the mission field, preaching, planting churches, encouraging Christians, training other men to do the same. That, the, the ordinary mission and mo uh, movement and momentum of the church, the ordinary task of the church, when we are doing that faithfully, that is when God moves in miraculous and other ways, in sprinklings and in, 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 in ways that are not primary, that are not usual, right? They're miracles. That's why we don't call them Saturday. They're not a weekly thing. They're not a this time on this day kind of thing. They're when he wants, if he wants to do it, but he does it to those. He empowers his spirit to move in these miraculous ways to those who are on mission already. I want to say that Jesus' Spirit will meet us, guide us, and if ever he will pour out his Holy Spirit gifts into the life of this church, it is not to those who are hungry to sit around and play with the miraculous gifts. Friends, it's for those on mission. The gifts are for the gospel. That's the point of them. And we love that we see this in Paul. Next, though, we, we, we go on. We see that from Troas, where they heard this call, 
they bring Luke and they go over to Philippi. So they, they cross the, the, ocean, uh, the, the sea. They then in the, in the town of Philippi. Now Philippi and uh, some of these other towns we'll look at are along what we call uh, the Via Ignatius. Right? This is the Roman way or highway to the east, to Asia, from Rome. And so you're on this enormous highway going throughout uh, Rome, Greece, and Asia. And right on this highway, just off the, the, the exit 42, is the town of Philippi. And there, the missionaries spend probably a couple of weeks at least, maybe a little bit longer, and they preach the gospel. And what we learn is that we have, it throughout the book of uh, the chapter 16, from verse 11 through to 15, we see the conversion of Lydia. In Philippi, there's not enough uh, Jews to make a, a synagogue, which was one of the, the uh, meeting places for worship and teaching in the Jewish religion, outside of Israel. If you're outside of Israel's Jerusalem, where the temple was, then you rather go to a synagogue in all of the towns and places around the world. Well, there wasn't enough Jews in that place of Philippi to form a synagogue. And so what Paul and Silas do is they find women gathering, worshiping Yahweh in some way in the, uh, in the town. They find them, preach to them, Lydia gets saved. A very rich and wealthy businesswoman in Philippi is now saved. This is going to be a, a high and lofty, very impressive church now, isn't it? Because the second convert is a demon-possessed slave girl. Okay, now we're changing up our demographics just a little bit. What we see in the book, in chapter 16, we see the conversion of Lydia and then this demon-possessed girl and then uh, also the, the jailer who has Paul and Silas in jail. Well, we see probably they are not all of the Christians from the Philippi mission because we see later on in verse 40 that there was also other brothers for Paul to encourage and teach. So, but I think that what Luke has done is taken set, uh, just three examples of those who got saved through their mission trip, put them together in a story and go, look at what God was doing. Rich businesswoman who was a Gentile but trying to worship the Jewish God. Slave girl who was demon-possessed, telling fortunes, making lots of money for, the pe- for her family. Uh, who, who owned her. And then another guy was the guy who was ruling over or in charge of the jail where Paul and, uh, not Barnabas, Paul and Silas were thrown after the, the owners of the slave girl who had this demon would tell futures, would make a killing for her family. When she has the demon cast out and there's contextual reasons that uh, commentators believe that she then becomes a Christian, This family realizes all of our money is gone. Our income is done. Tell your fortunes incorporated can no longer exist. Our our power is gone. And so they stir a riot, cast these missionaries into uh, prison. They get beat up and they're thrown in the prison where a jailer keeps watch over them. But again, miraculously, God brings salvation. Ordinarily, people got angry. They threw the missionaries in prison. But that was God's intention because there's somebody of God's elect in that prison, the jailer. And then God miraculously brings about an earthquake that breaks open the doors and and enables the, the prisoners and the missionaries to go free. But instead of running free, they meet with the prison with the prison guard, the jailer, preach the gospel to him, him and his whole household is saved, and then the governor or, or the authorities of the time ask for Paul and these missionaries to leave the city. There's a lot of legal workings on that as it happens to be. But they ask, they, they, they admit that they will, in fact, leave the city. But before they do, Paul goes around, equips, encourages, and uh, uh, prays for and teaches the Christians who had come to faith in the prior weeks. And then he and his team go on. Wow. Now, what we know is, is that Luke stops using the we language, that we went here, we did that. And so he is, and starts saying, they went down to Thessalonica. So at that point, we suggest that Paul, that Paul leaves behind Luke and Philippi to be an encouragement and a helper to the church. But he goes on. He goes with Silas and his brother Timothy as well. And they go down to about 160 kilometers 
to the southwest down to Thessalonica. 160 kilometers. That's like from here down to the, the coastal town of Ballina in northern north New South Wales. It's about a two-hour drive on our highway. They went probably on horses because they made it in just a couple of days, but an enormous length. They went down to Thessalonica, a city, a stronghold. Over the, uh, they stayed two, at two different places along the way, then they got there. And here we see what Calvin calls and what I want us to see. We see in Paul his unconquerable mental courage and indefatigable endurance of the cross. This, friends, is zeal. Zeal rightly channeled. Zeal that stirs up for Christ and is channeled rightly comes from a heart that has been informed wisely by the Scriptures and by those around them. Now remember, these men were sent out by a local church. A heart that has been informed and assured that it is on the mission of Christ in the world. That heart has a channeled zeal that cannot be stopped and will not be quenched. And we see that in Paul. He gets to Thessalonica, pained from the many beatings. I didn't mention this, but as they were thrown in prison back in Philippi, they were beaten until their necks to the backs of their legs were raw, were dripping with blood, were scarred now as they travel so far down this highway. They are having the sun beat down on them. Maybe the shirts that they're wearing are stinging their sores, but they ride on to continue preaching and they get to Thessalonica. And this is where our history of this church really starts getting personal. See, uh, Thessalonica was a wealthy, an enormously wealthy town. It is on both a, a seaport, which was a, you know, having so much trade come from the ocean, but it's also right on this main highway by land from Rome to Asia. So lots of uh, trade going through here, enormously wealthy, enormously pagan, extremely sinful and evil. Lots of military men coming through here. We know that when you put all these things together, a trade city, a military city, and a very wealthy city, you get a lot of sexual perversion, a lot of wickedness becoming common in the culture. This city has been around since about the 4th century BC. It was begun by uh, Cassander, one of the Greek kings, who was married to Alexander the Great's half-sister. It's a little bit irrelevant, but he names it after her. Her name was Thessalonica. That's what he names this town. It grows into this enormous city that it is when Paul brings the gospel of the true king to it. Here's what we see, that, that on the, uh, the capital of Macedonia is Thessalonica. And they come, unlike Philippi, where there was not enough Jews to make a, a synagogue, in Thessalonica there is so many Jews, there's an enormous synagogue we're going to see later, they have so many people. They have enough to dispatch some Jews down to the other town. They've got a large crowd of Jews, quite a population there in Thessalonica. And so Paul says, as we read in uh, chapter 17 now, that he went to the synagogue for three Saturdays time. So three Sabbaths in a row. So he probably arrived, maybe a Wednesday, Thursday. It said that he spent a few days there. And then they went to the synagogue and then the following, one week later, they went again. That's the second Sabbath. And one week later, so you've now got a span of just over a fortnight where they've been there three Sabbaths. And what is Paul doing? Well, we learn what he does when he comes to this town. He, as was his custom, we read, verse 2 of chapter 17, Paul went in to the synagogue, as was his custom, as in that was his missionary habit. He would go to a town, go to the Jews, equip and get the Jews converted and then bring them in on the mission to the Gentiles. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. This was 
Uh, This was uh, Paul's natural way to share the gospel with the Jews. He would prove from the Old Testament, from the prophecies, from the Psalms, from the example set out for us. He would say, you can see very clearly, can't you, that whoever this Messiah is, he's going to come. He has to die by necessity of our sin, by necessity of the prophecies made. He will have to die after living, be buried and be risen back from the dead. Do you see that in this Old Testament? And as they start to nod and and open their eyes with realization, yes, Paul, that seems to be what, what the Old Testament suggests. That is true. And as he gets them to this point of realization, he brings in the truth of what has happened to Jesus. He says, well, let me tell you about a man named Jesus of Nazareth, and I'll tell you what happened to him how he lived, how he taught, did miracles, how he died, and brothers, how he rose from the dead. And then he puts these two stories together and says, Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ of the Old Testament scriptures. Believe on him and be saved, Jewish brothers. And everybody, happy to do so, jumps on the bandwagon. No, not at all. Not at all. He preaches that, it's true. The the gospel goes forth powerfully. And verse 4 says, Some of them were persuaded. Yes, some of them believed in their own Messiah to eternal life. And then they joined Paul and Silas. And Timothy is with them at this point as well, but goes unnamed. He's still a junior man in the story. As did a great many of the devout Greeks. So we have the Jewish brothers who have many, some of whom have been saved, but then there were some Greeks, Gentiles, non-Jews who still came to the synagogue and learned about the God Yahweh and, and they seemed to respect that God, want to be included in the covenant of that God. They heard, they also were convinced, a great many of them and then not a few leading women. These were probably pagan women, Gentile women who had leadership authority or or, um, uh, positions in the town, and not a few of them have become Christians now through the preaching of Paul in the synagogue. And what happens next? Why is it that that then we read verse 5 and the trouble that comes on them? Well, I want to say that probably, now that's only after a fortnight that many people believed. Very likely, it Paul had a shortcut time in Thessalonica. Some people say he was only there for two or three weeks. Some others will say he was up there maybe for about up to six months. But regardless, it's short time. It's short time to plant a church, build a church, equip a church with leaders, and then leave trusting it'll be okay. But he preaches, some believe, and the Jews in verse 5, the Jews of the area were jealous They stirred up an enormous riot against these men. They went in the middle of the night. They've got signs, pitchforks, flame torches. They're chanting in the streets. They come up to the man who had apparently been saved and was housing Paul and Silas and Timothy. They attack that house. They drag out some of the brothers and Jason, the man who was owning that house. But Paul and Timothy and Silas are nowhere to be found they, they mistreat Jason, bring him to the governor and the ruling authorities who charge them, do not let Paul, Silas, come back to this town. In some way, Silas, uh, were, Jason, we're told in verse 9 that he gives some kind of security, pays some kind of bail to say Paul won't be back. That's what it seems like he did. And then he was let go. And so Paul and Silas from there have to travel on even further. Let me tell you, let me tell you that, that if you're going to be on mission for Jesus in this world, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, you have to get used to slander. You must simply expect, as we've just learned in 1 Peter, you must be used to, you have to get used to being ill-spoken of, lied about, and hated for the gospel you're preaching and, and the changes in people's lives and culture that it brings about. It's simply... Normal, as we read. Well, well, where they go from there? Paul, Silas, Timothy, they leave Thessalonica and travel another 80 kilometers down to Berea. Now, in Berea, there were Jews. 
And those Jews did not attack and hate what, what they were being taught like they did in Thessalonica, but in fact, they were very exemplary in the way that they heard what was being preached, compared it with the Old Testament scriptures, and agreed after studying. They said, yes, this is true. Many believed. Many were saved. A church began. But this riotous, jealous crowd from Thessalonica, those Jews, were so opposed to the message of Christ and his missionaries in Paul, Silas, and Timothy, that they too traveled. They too traveled 80 kilometers down to Berea to stir up a riot there against Paul and his brothers. These were vicious men against the gospel. They were not happy to have them out of their town. They were jealous of the success of the gospel and the way it welcomed in all Gentiles to be on the same level as Jews. So they attack it. They travel. They attack it. Now, imagine this young church in Thessalonica. Look at the wolves and the lions that are surrounding them. These angry men who want to destroy the church at all cost. How will this church flourish? They will surely be stamped out, crushed, and devoured in the first few weeks. Well, from there, from Berea, uh, Paul, unable to stay there, he leaves and goes down to the coast. He escapes, gets to the coast, and he leaves Silas and Timothy back in Berea secretly. He goes down, he writes a letter saying, please send Timothy and Silas to meet me, in, uh, meet me later on. I must meet them in Athens. So he leaves and he takes a 480-kilometer boat ride throughout the, 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 the Greek islands down to Athens. That's the equivalent of getting on a boat at the port of Brisbane and traveling down to Port Macquarie. This guy has traveled long and hard. He is weary and weak from the labor. And I can't go into all that we want to talk about in all of this because we're running out of time. I'm only a tenth of the way through. I breathe a sigh of relief. I'm just kidding. But, but it's there that Paul weakened from his journey, maybe so discouraged, and, and not just discouraged and tired physically and spiritually because of, of how much opposition he has faced, but friends, he is, worst of all, alone. His brothers aren't with him. He's just on this ship himself going down towards another city where he will know nobody, be the only Christian his heart is hurting. And he arrives in Athens and ready to just take a rest, recoup and re-energize, renew his strength over some time of resting. God stirs in his heart a jealousy for the glory of Christ and a love for the lost souls in that city. Where he goes and he's meant to just go and rest for months, Paul, you've been beaten, attacked, and opposed. Wouldn't you, all right, let's just be honest, wouldn't we want some time to just recuperate, take a little Airbnb trip down to Byron Bay and hang out for a bit? I've earned it. But Paul believes, as we should, friends, that he owes the gospel to the world. He owes it to them. Christ died that they might be saved, so he must preacher. And there in Athens, he is provoked. He must preach to this godless city. He preaches. Many become saved. He is then uh, traveled over to, uh, no, sorry, in Athens, Silas and Timothy come down and join him, find out he's already started planting churches here. This man is, as we learned from Calvin, he has an unwavering zeal. As Calvin told us, an unconquerable mental courage and indefatigable endurance of the cross. That is what they found their brother doing down in Athens, preaching again. Well, finally, he has company. He finally has his brothers with him again, but he doesn't hold on to them. He, loving his company and fellowship, feels all the more a, a desirous love for those brothers he has just helped birth into spiritual existence in Philippi and Thessalonica. And so as much as he loves having them with him, he sends off again, as, as we will read in the book of Thessalonians, he calls it being orphaned. He orphans himself again by choice to send off his family back to Macedonia, back to go and encourage the churches and let him know what is going on. 
It's been months now. He hasn't seen his brothers. Last he heard of Thessalonica, the Jews from that city came to kill him. How does he know? They haven't already killed or discouraged from believing all of those that were left in Thessalonica. Unsure of what they're doing. Unsure of how they're going. Whether they even still exist. He's here in Athens sending his brothers to go and find out. And those men will soon, uh, Timothy to, to Thessalonica and Silas up to Philippi. They will then again meet him over in Corinth, another city he will go to, and that is where he will write the book of, the, of Thessalonians, the first book, to write back to them and say, I've heard what's going on. I want to ask you, if you were in that situation, in the Thessalonian, Thess- Thessalonian church, that was the beginning of your Christianity, or if those afflictions came upon you, Christian, how would a, a pastor, your beloved brother in another city, or, or maybe after a time of quarantine, if he was to send a reporter to come and let him know how you are going in your faith after tribulation, how do you think you would fare? How do you think the report coming back would, would, would be telling the, the beloved brother asking? Would you be crushed, shut up, shriveled up, discouraged, closed off to missionary faithfulness as shown to you in Paul, gospel preaching, faithfully obeying Jesus in your life like Paul showed you? Well, the encouragement that comes back from Thessalonica is nothing short of spurring to Paul. This church was up there, not just surviving, but in fact, thriving. They had fruit that was not just lasting, but growing in this amazing harvest, fruit that was abiding. God had done, and this is what you'll read as you go through the book of 1 Thessalonians, this joy from Paul, looking at his church that he had heard nothing from for so long, and then hears that they are going so well. The gospel has gripped them. God has done a real, true work in their midst, that they have been flourishing through affliction. And he writes this letter of joy that we will be going into. This is why, surely, sitting there discouraged in Athens, discouraged in Corinth, he's, he's thinking to himself, was that why God sent us there? Surely I should have gone to Asia or Bithynia, where I wanted to go. Why did God close us off and instead send us somewhere to get beaten and plant seeds that never ended up bearing lasting fruit? But when he heard, when he heard that they were going so well, by the power of the Spirit, by the power of the gospel, by the decree of God and his sovereign love poured out, Thessalonica was flourishing in the gospel. Later on, he's going to go back to the mainland and I'm going back to uh, uh, Syria and Antioch and that will close up his missionary journey of the second round. I want to ask though, in, in this whole missionary journey, as we now close up, I've gone far too long. I hope that you've been excited as going through that few chapters as I have, but, but what was it that gave that mission so much power and what was the result? I want to say that what gave it power, what we will see in the book of Thessalonians, what gave it the power was the gospel. Jesus, his message preached to sinners that they can be saved and forgiven on the basis of nothing but Jesus. And he has received all of his benefits and blessings received on the basis of your faith alone. That message That being the core, the center, the foundation of every church ministry, every Christian in the church, every sermon, every outreach mission trip, every piece of theology is centered on Jesus. That was what gave that church such power that lasted. True power, as you heard from this morning's sermon from Brother Vic. And then what was the effect Let me tell you what what the the Thessalonian Jews said of these men. They said in their accusation to the civil magistrates, saying we need to get rid of these men from the city. You know why? They've turned the whole world upside down. Get rid of them. They're mucking everything up. The guys had only been in one other city for a few weeks. 
And already they can be spoken of as having turned the world upside down. Friends, that's what the gospel does. It imparts by the Holy Spirit new hearts into people. That changes the way they live. That changes a city and a culture. The gospel going into the kingdom of darkness stirs up the beehive. Let me tell you that. Do not expect smooth reactions as we go into mission. Expect a violent response. As we go through the book of 1 Thessalonians, these are going to be our 13 sermons that we look at And this is where I'm going to close. A a bit of a vision cast as we go forward. Number one, we're going to see in in the first part of the first chapter, we will see number one, the power of the gospel. Then we'll see the spread of the gospel. This is the book of 1 Thessalonians. I'm breaking down how we're going to go through this book. Then we will see what the ministers of the gospel should be like. Then we'll look at the reception of the gospel. Then the afflictions of the gospel. Then love in the gospel. A work of faith, which is obedience to the gospel. Then the labor of love, which is the everyday living of the gospel. Then we'll see how our steadfast hope, the promise of the gospel. We're going to then look at, in chapter 5, the eschatological or end times gospel. Then we'll look at the church of the gospel, the spirit versus the gospel, question mark, and the future of the gospel. That is, that, that's what we're looking at because that's what you find in the church of Thessalonica, a gospel-rich church where Jesus is doing his mission in the world by his sovereign Holy Spirit through the word of God. And friends, with that, can you pray with me as we close out this overview of the missionary journey of Paul? Father God, we are humbled and we are convicted by the example that Paul and his brothers set for the zeal that the gospel should stir in us. How how quick we are to, to keep our time, demand our own money, Keep our energy for us and those hobbies we wish to do, but we, but we, we can be so quick to spend, so quick to, to do those other, uh, expend energy in, in the pursuit of comforts. But Lord, we are so slow to sacrifice like we ought to be for your mission. I pray, God, that as we look at what a church looks like when it is given over to the reality of the gospel, I pray, God, that you would make us a church like Thessalonica all the more, as you already have been doing. Glorify Jesus through this family, this church. God, we pray and we thank you for your grace. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.